Here's a quick quiz for you. Who wrote that hymn? When did he write that hymn? 1500 is not good enough. 1527, he wrote that hymn. The uh, musical accompaniment to that hymn was not written in 1527, but the words remain incredibly uh, pertinent and true. I'm Nathan, if those of you who don't know me, and welcome this morning, and it's my privilege this morning to look at one of the first essentials of the Reformation, and that essential is Scripture alone. You know, have you considered in, in your lifetime, or have you considered even right now as you, you sit in these seats, how you obtained the Word of God? How did you get it? Now, I, I don't mean did uh, someone give it to you as a gift. I, I don't mean did you rock on along to uh, Kurong and, and look amongst the, the shelves of many translations of the Bible and, and pick one. I'm asking the question, how do we actually receive God's Word in its form, in its English translation, right here and now? See, what is the purpose of God's Word? God's Word is primarily there to reveal Himself. God's Word, inspired by God Himself, explains the way of salvation through Christ and Christ alone. And our belief in the centrality of God's Word must equally be balanced with the centrality of Christ. These two things do not separate. For example, the Bible was not given to reveal the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but to reveal the hand of God for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Likewise, this revelation of of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the Bible is not a revelation about them. It's a revelation about the Savior of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. God's Word tells us about the way of salvation, the way of the cross, that our release from sin can only come through the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the Messiah. There is no remission for sin without the shedding of blood. That's what God's Word tells us. But you know what? This book has also been brought to us by the blood of the martyrs. And I think... 500 years after these major events, we sometimes lose sight of that. The death of martyrs, these martyrs who stood firm on their conviction that this was the Word of God, that in the Word of God is God's final authority for all things pertaining to life and godliness, that in God's Word is the final, infallible, inerrant authority about the way of salvation. These martyrs died in a cause to bring the Bible back to the common people. And today is very much about celebrating that. 
This is, well, actually on the 31st of October is what we know in the church calendar as Reformation Sunday. And I know we're mostly brethren in here and Baptists and other things, and that doesn't mean a lot to us, right? But it is significant. Because the reformers of the past are significant for our theology today as examples of the authority of Scripture alone. This morning I want you to go away with a, a new sense of heart and passion for God's Word. That God's Word will permeate throughout your life to every area of life and it will be your final authority. That's the things we stand upon. So what was happening? What was happening? What was life like 650 years ago in Europe and in England? It was a period that was known as the, the Middle Ages or, or the Dark Ages. What was happening? I'll give you probably just a very briefly uh, four things that were occurring during this period of time. Uh, the first thing was scholasticism or scholarship or universities were being formed for the first time. Universities were founded in places like Oxford, like Cambridge, like Paris, and like Cologne. And later in places like Wittenberg, and then right across Europe, there was this, this major thrust towards knowledge, towards understanding, and universities were on the rise. Another thing that happened was this. Now, James Brown would tell me what that is without even probably opening his eyes. It's the Gutenberg Press. What is the significance of the Gutenberg Press? Prior to this time in, in the history of the world, there was no way of duplicating books other than handwriting them out. This particular technology would be the Facebook of the 14th and 13th century. Would be the personal computer. It was significant for the first time in the history of the world, books could be duplicated exactly as they were intended to be duplicated. It was a significant technological advancement through that period. What else was happening through this period? Well, the church the church was one church, and it was controlled by Rome. It was controlled by popes. And after the glory days of Innocent III in 1059 through 1216 and Gregory VII, popes of that era, and they would consider them the glory days because everything was uh, considered under their authority, it was starting to decline. Papal authority was being questioned the church's traditions were being questioned. There even was a schism between the French and the Italians. It probably still goes on to this day, I don't know, but there was a schism about who should be Pope. So there were some kidnappings that occurred, and, and uh, finally, by 1417, they decided to go back to one Pope. And they had the schism. Well, our Pope is right from France, or our Pope is right from Italy. So the church generally was in decline. That what was happening through this area 650 years ago. But not only the church was in decline, theology was in decline. 
things we understood was about God was in decline because the church was opposing traditions upon the people. You see, in those days, the only Bible was a Latin Bible. And not many people spoke Latin. So therefore, the church said, well, because it's in Latin, as, a, as priests, as, as popes, as whatever, we are the only ones that can instruct you in this. So the, the Bible was a closed book to the common people. And the theological misgivings came down to areas of merit and indulgences, or how do you become saved? Can you buy your way to heaven? Can you work your way to heaven? That was the, the theological view of the day. View of authority was being challenged. Theologically, the Catholic Church stated that we are the authority. The Pope is the authority. And salvation comes through the church. Salvation comes through the sacraments, through the, the bread and the wine. And the priest is the only one that could effect confession of sin. And this had moved significantly from, from about you know, 400 AD through to this time, 1200, the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages. The purity of the gospel of the grace of Christ had moved to be understood in these terms. But the basic issue throughout the Reformation was authority. Who had authority? Who had authority to interpret scriptures? Who had authority to determine that you were saved? And who had authority over all matters of Christianity? Some 150 years before for Luther, now the 95 Thesis to the Castle Church of Wittenberg, which is what we're celebrating today. That happened 500 years ago on Tuesday. He nailed these arguments, this conversation, if you like, on the castle door. 150 years before that, we have some pre-reformers, some men who were being stirred by God's Spirit to bring the purity of the gospel back to the people. So we're just going to look at a couple of those very quickly. The first one is a fellow by the name of John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was an Englishman. Uh, he was born in 1329, died in 1384. He was an Englishman and he was an Oxford scholar. Actually, this fellow went to, went to school at the age of 12, to university. He did two years of prep at university, and then he completed his doctoral degrees. It took him about 10 years to become a doctor. He knew a number of languages. And uh, with all knowledge, he was the first Englishman to loudly affirm the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. He was the first Englishman to translate the Bible into English. He took the Latin Vulgate and did a translation into English for the, for the good of the people. He was the first Englishman to attack the false gospel of Rome and restore the true gospel of the people. He was the first Englishman to resurrect the primacy of preaching the word of God. In all these matters, Wycliffe was first. He died in uh, 1384 of natural causes, and thankfully for him, he died before 
the Catholics got together and decided that he, they wanted to declare him a heretic. So he died in 1384, and in 1415 to 17, this was a long council by the Catholic Church, um, they decided that Wycliffe was a heretic because they, he had challenged their authority. And lo and behold, he'd actually translated from the, the oral inspiring Latin Vulgate into English, the Word of God. So they thought, what can we do? He's dead. So they ordered his remains to be exhumed from the ground and they burnt him. I don't think Wycliffe would have minded, quite frankly. They burned him. And lo and behold, in 1428, some 15 or so years after this first burning, they said, this is not enough. Pope Martin V ordered the remains of Wycliffe to be dug up a second time. There wasn't much left, folks. They thought, we're going to grab his bones. This time they burned his bones. And his ashes were scattered into the River Swift, which was nearby. Why did they do this? It was a desperate attempt. A desperate attempt to, I I believe, to... um, prevent any future resurrection of Wycliffe. Hey, God's greater than that. The word of his mouth, he can create universes, galaxies, men and women. The resurrection, he can bring the scattered ashes of whoever back. Don't forget that. So, they did this. One historian, Thomas Fuller, wrote, They burned his bones to ashes and cast him into the swift, a neighbouring brook running hard by. Thus, the brook was conveyed his ashes into the Avon, the Avon into the Severn, into the narrow seas, and they into the main ocean. And thus, the ashes of Wycliffe are the emblem of his doctrine, which now is dispersed the world over. The impact of Wycliffe the impact of an English Bible magnified the grace of God in salvation. A pre-reformer. This is before Luther was even on the scene, 150 years. And this is what's happening. On the other side of Europe, a fellow by the name of John Hus, the now Czech Republic or Bohemia in those days, he was a defender of Wycliffe's teaching, um, some students had gone to Oxford and heard Wycliffe. And uh, then Hus got involved with this because he was, the, uh, he was the university prof in his university in Bohemia. And he was a staunch defender of the teaching of the gospel of grace of Christ. It's by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone the glory of God alone. He publicly denied the power of the popes uh, to issue indulgences and expressed doubts about the existence of purgatory. He was excommunicated in 1415 and he was guaranteed safe passage uh, to, to his trial. However, upon his imprisonment and six months later, he was condemned as a heretic. 
And you see, this is the thing. 650 years ago, if you were condemned by the church as a heretic, what happened? It's a death penalty. I don't think we understand that enough. These men who stood out on a limb for the purity of the gospel, for the purity of God's word, died. Because they were going against the church of the day. They died. You know, he was hung on a cross by a steel chain. And just to make sure that he was dead, underneath him was bushes of gunpowder and firewood. And they lit that just to make sure that he was dead. At his death, uh, Hus. Now, Hus in Czechoslovakian, or Bohemian, whatever language you want to call it, Hus means goose. So if you like in English, it's John Goose. At his death, this is what he said. You may roast this goose, but a hundred years from now, a swan will rise whose singing you will not be able to silence. Such the faith of a man in his death to look forward to the fact that God's word and God's word alone was going to triumph. Because it's the message of Jesus. There was a close impact to that. In 1525, some five years later, the Husserite church was formed in this, in this heart of Catholicism in Bohemia. You see, both Wycliffe and Hus, Hus held to the authority of Scripture. Scripture for them was inerrant. It was infallible. Explained how people came to salvation through, through faith in Christ. By grace alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. It was their supreme authority. It was such an authority that they were willing to die. That's the pre-reformers. Let's move forward a hundred years. A hundred years after the goose had announced that the swan would take over, if you like. The church is still dominated by Rome. But however... We now have this fellow, Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation. That's probably not a bad likeness, but I don't know what Luther looks like, so I'm, I'm trusting that's what he looks like. He was a scholar. He was a pastor. He was a reformer. He was a man deeply in love with his Lord and Saviour. And yes, he's also mortal because Luther himself had some things which weren't quite right. He didn't like Jews. He was anti-Semitic. He got a little bit funny with some of his theology around the bread and the wine. But by and large, Luther has left an indelible mark upon you and I. The tenets that he raised here in, in 1517 reverberate throughout the last 500 years and continue to reverberate. His view on Scripture alone reverberates even today. So let's look at some of the highlights from, from Luther. He was a trained lawyer, uh, 1498 to 1505. 
However, at the age of 20, 21, in 1505, he was walking back from one place to another and he got struck by lightning. And as you would do in those days, when you were struck by lightning, you cried out to the saints, to the patrons, saying to the coal miners, actually. He cried out, old Luther. And he said, help me, Saint Anna, and I will become a monk. That was his cry. And he got home and he was, he was still okay, still intact. And he kept to his vow and he entered the Augustinian order. That was a pretty high order of monkness, if you like. Okay, so, you know, it's, it's a bit like which school do you go to? Do you go to Ridley or do you go to MST or do you go to Dallas or do you go to Masters or, or, or whatever else? Um, this, this, Augustinian was considered the, the best. So he, he went into that school in 1505, was ordained by 1507. And what he was trying to do is he was trying to obtain his salvation through his good works and piety. That's what he was being taught. And he was finding this difficult to correlate until someone gave him the word of God to read for himself. But before that, in 1510, he decided to take a bit of a pilgrimage to Rome because Rome was the center of the church, right? And he said, okay, I'm going to go and have a look. I want to see the piety. I want to see the beauty of the church in full glory. So I'm going to find my peace by going to Rome, he thought. He visited the sacred sites and he venerated uh, the supporting relics. Uh, But you know what he discovered? Instead of this peace and this godliness, he, he discovered gross abuses and masked hypocrisies of the priesthood. And this was demonstrated in Luther's mind uh, to the greatest extent when he went to the Scala Santica. Now that's Latin for the holy stairs. Now these stairs were evidently were the steps that Jesus had descended from a Pilate's judgment hall, evidently. They had been moved to Rome, presumably from Jerusalem, and the promise was that God would forgive sins for all those who crawled up these stairs on their knees, kissing each step on the way. Luther did climb those stairs, and he prayed at each step. He kissed each step. See, he wanted to liberate his grandfather from purgatory, another, another theological heresy. But uh, upon completing this task, he questioned the theology of the practice. And he returned to Erfurt despondent. And then he enrolled or transferred to the University of Wittenberg. So he arrived in Wittenberg in, in 1512. He, he, oh, by 1512, he got his PhD. And he spent 34 years at Wittenberg lecturing until his death. He was also a pastor of a church in Wittenberg. And what happened in 1517, 500 years ago, Luther responded to another Catholic practice of trying to sell salvation. An indulgence was by a means you could get an indulgence ticket, an indulgence letter, and buy salvation for your loved ones who are in purgatory. Now just theologically, folks, 
we've read through Peter recently. We've studied Peter. There is no chance for salvation after death. Hebrews tells us it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. If you don't know Christ, if you haven't put your faith and trust in Christ, now is the day, now is the time. Call out to him. He's the only one that saves. His grace is sufficient for all. It's mighty to save. So some of, of Luther's members were listening to Tetzel and they were buying indulgences, thinking they were going to, in some way, obtain salvation for their departed, dead family. You see, what was behind this was Pope Leo X was wanting to build the basilica. He needed to raise some tax. He was doing it through indulgences. And Luther sees this, and he can't correlate this to the scriptures he's reading. So he goes and nails this thesis to the castle church in Wittenberg. I'm going to read you some of them. There's 95. I'm not going to read all 95, but I'm going to read some to you. Because I think this gives us an idea of the type of fight that Luther was about to get into. I'll just give you part of it. Uh, let Let's say, uh, Thesis 6, the Pope cannot remit any guilt except by declaring and showing that there has been remitted by God, or to be sure by remitting guilt in cases reserved to his judgment, if his right to grant remission in these cases were disregarded, the guilt would certainly remain unforgiven. Item 7, God remits guilt. Item 21, Thus, those indulgence preachers are in error who say that a man is absolved from every penalty and saved by papal indulgences. Uh, item 27, they preach only human doctrines. Item 32, those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their teachers. Etc. It goes on. 95 of them. And the, the core of them is it's against papal authority and it's against indulgences. So as you can imagine, this caused a little bit of a stir because remember he was an Augustinian monk. He was part of the church. And yet he was discovering the power of God's word. And you know what? He actually never came to faith in Christ until after he posted his 95 Thesis. This really, really fascinated me as I was doing some research on him. He came to faith in Christ somewhere in the middle of 1518. So he was in the process of trying to reconcile the things he was seeing against what was in God's word. And he preached a sermon in, in 1519. And after he preached this sermon, the sermon was called Two Kinds of Righteousness. And I want to quote for you from the sermon. This is what he, his bold exposition was. Through faith in Christ, therefore, Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness and all that he has becomes ours. Rather, he himself becomes ours. Such faith is called the righteousness of God. This is the righteousness given in the place of the original righteousness lost to Adam. When he preached this sermon, 
He proclaimed what had been lost for the previous thousand years. He proclaimed the gospel of grace. Christ's perfect sacrifice is imputed, counted to us when we put our faith and trust in him. That's what he proclaimed. And you can imagine when this was heard because at this time, you know, the printing press was arranged. So what was happening is his students were writing down these sermons and distributing them. It didn't take long before Rome heard about it and he had to appear before a council. Uh, Martin Eek. And the issue was indulgences and papal authority. Luther didn't yield or recant. In fact, he was outspoken. Surprise, surprise. He was outspoken. And he said this, A simple layman armed with the scriptures is to be believed above a pope or council. Talk about a slap in the face with a wet handkerchief. No, more than that. He was undermining the authority of the papal office and he's undermining the authority and tradition of the church at that time. He said, a simple layman armed with scripture is to be believed above a pope or council. For the sake of scripture, we should reject pope and council. So consequently, Leo the, the tenth said, I'm going to write a papal bull. What is a papal bull? It's a letter. It's an edict. It was sealed with a red seal. So in 1520, Luther received this uh, papal bull and he had... Uh, and just a part of the papal bull was kind of humorous, really. Because the bull was saying, if you don't repent within 60 days, you're going to be excommunicated. In other words, we're going to take your head off. That's the type of excommunication we're talking here. Because in this bull, they were disagreeing with 41 of his 95 arguments. And um, the edict began with this from Leo X. Arise, O Lord, and judge your cause. A wild boar has invaded your vineyard. The Pope thought he was just a wild animal trying to scourge out the traditions of the church. So Luther responded in a couple of ways. He wrote three tracts. Uh, one to address Christian nobility, one to address the Babylon captivity of the church, in other words, how Rome was um, wayward in its ecclesiology. And the other one was the freedom of Christian men. That, so he wrote these three, three tracts, really apologetic in their nature to defend his thesis. And finally, he got all the townspeople together in Wittenberg and he did what you would do. He burned the bull. Not the physical bull, the paper bull. He made a statement, I'm burning this thing in the front of everybody because it is worthless. So this got the ire of the... Uh, the uh, Romanists up, and he was directed to attend to the Diet of Worms. Now, that's not some fancy diet, okay? This is a place. Worms is a place. A diet means a conflab. We're going to talk about a few things. So he got to this Diet of Worms, and the purpose of it was this fellow, uh, Johann Elk, presented and re- asked him, will you recant? Will you recant? And Luther, Luther was, wanted some time and space, so he said, can we reconvene tomorrow? And Luther's reply is famous. And it's written in your notes. It's an incredible reply around the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. Luther's reply was this, unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, 
since it's well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it's neither safe nor right to go against my conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. We need Luther's today, folks. We need the same... feeling and heartfelt conviction that Luther had when it comes to scripture in our lives. This bold assertion declared his authority, his ultimate authority, his ultimate authority was God's word. 1521, and after that he was said, we'll give you safe passage, even though he was condemned as a heretic by Charles V. And a price was played on his head. They said, oh, we'll give you safe passage. He knew the history of John Huss. He was, uh, he was uh, reckoned to have been given safe passage. So friends of uh, Luther kidnapped him from safe passage, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? Kidnapped him from the safe passage, and he ended up in, uh, in Wartburg at a castle where he committed, and it only took him about four or five months, where he committed to write the New Testament from Greek into German. He wanted the Word of God to be available to the people of Germany. So that's what he did. In 1527, he was a strong writer. We sang it today. A mighty fortress is our God. Based on Psalm 46. And in 1546, he died. So what was Luther's legacy? Revival of preaching. For Luther, the word of God meant that the word of God needed to be preached and proclaimed. What changed was the the church architecture changed. You know, in the Catholic system, the, the center of the church was the mass, was the altar. Luther removed that and said the center of the church is going to be the pulpit because it's God's word and it's going to be proclaimed. The pulpit became central from the reformers onwards. The authority of scripture was one of Luther's clear legacies in scripture alone. the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. Now, this is just not Luther's domain, okay? The Roman Catholic Church at this time believed in the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. It's only in the last 200 years that in our, modern, our modern theologians are starting to play with that concept in a disastrous way. But he highlighted the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture as God's breathed out word. Turn with me to Second Timothy. Chapter 3. This is one of his legacies. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. That is the purpose of scripture, folks. God's written word is breathed out by God. It is his word. Scripture attests to that in over three or four thousand times. 
that it is God's word. And because God cannot lie, his word is inerrant. And everything it affirms. Luther maintained uh, verbal inspiration, divine inerrancy, supreme authority, intrinsic clarity, and the complete sufficiency of Scripture. The complete sufficiency of Scripture for all things in life and godliness. That was one of Luther's legacies, and you read in his writings and, and those things, and you just marvel at that. Now, I just want to tell you, right back on the, the primacy of preaching, have a guess how many sermons Luther preached. Now, I've told some of you, you're not allowed to answer. Have a guess how many sermons he preached in his lifetime, from about 1510 through to when he died, 1546. Because you guys think you get it tough one Sunday a week. He preached 7,000 sermons. We have 2,500 of them recorded. He preached three to four times on a Sunday, then three or four times during the week. The man was a pastor theologian. He loved God's word. The authority was God's word. And he proclaimed God's word. Pray for our country, folks. Pray that we have strong pulpits because the strong pulpit is the only thing that changes man's heart. I was going to give you a little bit of uh, history on another great reformer, Tyndale. We don't have time for that, so that won't occur, which is a real shame. Because Tyndale was an Englishman who took up the if you like, the charge from Wycliffe, and he studied, he knew eight languages, he was in Cambridge, he fled to Europe because of persecution out of England, and he wrote out the New Testament in English and the Old. And he went back to the original Greek. He didn't do what Wycliffe had done, he just went to Latin. What Tyndale did is he went back to Greek, and he was martyred. He stood trial for his offenses. They went and faced him into Europe and found him, and he, he was martyred, and he he, he asserted justification by faith alone. And a year after his death, the English Bible was approved as the publication of the Church of England. But once the historian said after Tyndale's death, English Bibles into England was like a mighty river continually bearing new waters to the sea. I actually just got to show you. I've got to show you because this is a fantastic. There's Tyndale. There's the... This is a copy of um, his Gospel of John that he translated. Now, I'll just read the first line to you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, and, and God was that Word. The fame was in the beginning with God. All things were made by it, and without it was made nothing. I'll leave that up, and you can have a look at it. It's quite, quite fun trying to work out the English. <laughs> it's quite fun trying to work it out. Shows you how English has changed as a language. The Tyndale was Tyndale is the reason we have this in English. The basis of the King James Version was from Tyndale's Bible. It became Miles Coverdale, and then it became the Matthews Bible, then the King James Version. And uh, now we have the versions we have today. So, folks, what's your view on the supremacy and authority and infallibility of Scripture?
Have you become cold towards reading and studying God's Word? Do you find it unrelevant? If you need to, you need to cry out to God in repentance. It is God's breathed out Word. It is inerrant. There is no error. It is infallible. And it provides the only way of salvation and the only way of sanctification. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Scripture is all sufficient. Scripture is our authority. Scripture is without error because it is the very Word of God. There's a monument of the Reformation, and this monument uh, is carved these words, inscribed these words, post tenebris lux. How's your Latin? Mine's useless. It means after the darkness, light. It's a striking inscription. After the darkness of the Middle Ages, when to all intents and purposes at least the Bible was a closed and chained book, light came. And light came in the most strange manner. Light came when the pages of the Bible were once more opened and its truths preached and believed in the hearts of people. Today also there is a darkness covering our land and gross darkness is covering our people. As in Amos 8.11, it tells us there is a famine in the land for hearing the words of the Lord. If light is to come there, brothers and sisters, then the Word of God must be our supreme and final authority. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God conveys the very words of God, and these words are without error. His Word is to be trusted implicitly because God's character is perfect and God does not lie or deceive. Cry out to the Lord today and seek Him to place a deep desire in your heart for His Word. As Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Scripture alone.